Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Pai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast. It's a podcast that looks at immersive storytelling, experiential design, and the future of spatial computing. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash VR. So continuing on my series of looking at different experiences from Venice Immersive 2023, this is episode number 18 out of 35, and the third of three of looking at the context of enemies and war. So this is a piece called Tales of the March, which is a 360 video by Stefano Casertano. So this is around the different death marches that were happening in the context of the Holocaust. So it's a 360 video that shows a number of different durational takes. That's really one of the first pieces of media that's trying to dig into the death marches that were happening in the context of the Holocaust. So the contextual domain is around war and as well as the Holocaust and the World War II, but also looking at prisoners and the torture that they're going through, as well as death on these death marches, and also connections to family that ties then at the end. So this is a piece that has a center of gravity, mostly around emotional presence, where you're just watching these durational takes and just letting it sit into the cruelty of what's happening with these death marches. So overall, kind of using this sense of environmental presence to tell the story. It's actually a secondary component after you're done with the 360 video where you kind of get into a little bit more interactive and pedagogical, like learning more with different videos and different infographics and whatnot. So there's kind of a secondary component where you're able to get a lot more additional context and information that is much more focused on the mental presence as well as light levels of interactivity as you're navigating around. So that's what we're covering on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Stefano happened on Monday, September 4th, 2023 at Venice Immersive in Venice, Italy. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. My name is Stefano Casertano. I reside uh, between Berlin and Rome. I am a VR creator and producer. I started working in VR in 2019 in the music industry, so creating VR music videos. And uh, I am here at a festival with a project titled Tales of the March, developed through the Biennale College VR. Great. Maybe you could give a bit more context as to your background and your journey into VR. I am actually a filmmaker and I directed uh, six documentaries, feature documentaries. And I also developed a career in traditional, so flat filmmaking. And the next year I'm going to direct my first fiction feature. I'm already booked for the second fiction feature in 2025. And at the same time, uh, I am further expanding my presence in the VR world through the, so I'm planning the production of two new VR projects and actually the first project is a pure VR project, and the second one is a mix of VR and AR project. Great, and maybe you could give a bit more context for how the story of Tales on March came about for you to tell. That's a great question, because it's actually a personal story. Tales of the March is, uh, first of all, a, a film, VR film, about the Death Marches. The Death Marches is, uh, we'll say, a not a much known episode of the Holocaust. So at the end of the Second World War, in the winter between 1944 and 1945, the SS forced 750,000 prisoners to leave the concentration camps and walk, so march, towards central Germany. And about one-third perish along the way of exhaustion or they will be shot if they were not able to walk. And I learned of this tragedy upon visiting the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem and there was a map on a wall where the main tracks of the largest death marches were displayed. 
and I asked uh, what it was and I got this explanation. And so I was thinking about a way of conveying uh, what these matches are about together with some information to a broader audience, maybe using a new language. And um, I considered first, of course, doing a traditional film and then actually it was year, it was 2018, I was here in Venice and I thought about the potential of expressing this story in VR and that's why I started thinking about it and I developed the concept and I had met with a director, Michel Rilak in Berlin at a conference at Soul House Berlin and then I, a couple of years later I applied uh, to Biennale College 2021 and together with the mentors uh, we developed a concept that would allow us to use this language to express this story. So you're here at the Venice Immersive 2023 showing Tales of the March, and it's a cinematic 360 video, a lot of observational, just kind of witnessing these different scenes as they happen. So maybe take me back to what you originally told the Biennale College as to what you thought the project was going to be when you first had conceived of it. It's a story, I would say, of becoming a VR creator, because my knowledge at the time was very limited. So my first idea was to create a project somehow similar to the famous Carne y Arena by Iñárritu with volumetric capturing of 100 prisoners. And I was quite uh, early made aware of the fact that creating a project with volumetric animation of 100 people is not that easy. And not just technically, but also in terms of computing power and any other problem you might face. So we were considering different options. The point is that we needed many people to be in the project. And the best way, first of all, was that of using an immersive camera, surround camera, so the, the traditional InstaPro. And that's what we did. I would say also what is relevant about this project is that this is the first time that a death match is portrayed in fiction. This has never been done before. And so the first challenge we have to face and our first mission was to reconstruct something that was historically accurate. And there is a, a section of the Sachsenhausen Foundation in Germany. Sachsenhausen is a concentration camp north of Berlin. And they have an archive about the death marches in a forest between Berlin and Hamburg, in, I would say literally in the middle of nowhere. We went there, I met with the director, Carmen Lange, and she accepted to provide us with her historical consulting. So everything you see in the film is accurate. But not just that. In terms of accuracy, I consulted, I read, I would say it was a total of 12 biographies of survivors of death marches. And then always through Carmen Lange, I could speak with a survivor. His name was Alexander Fried. And I collected an eight hour interview. And Alexander passed away last year. After the Holocaust, he led a very happy life until the age of 96. And I must say, I never met him in person, only on, over the phone, and I was supposed to meet him and go tracking with him. So since I am, it's very sad that I'm not able to do this, so the work is dedicated to his memory. Anyhow, anything you hear and you see on this death march, on this film, is something that actually happened. So our protagonist is a composite character. What he says in the voiceover is uh, mostly words of Mr. Alexander Fried or something we've taken from books. 
And also there is a song you hear, and a woman singing as the march passes through the village. This also actually happened. So I don't know how much I can spoil about the project, but I will spoil, so don't listen to the next 20 seconds if you want me to spoil it. So anyhow, the prisoner here is a woman singing the chorus of the Jewish slaves from Verdi's Nabucco, which is basically a song that the Jewish slaves sang in Egypt before being liberated. And the actual person that heard this story thought he was imagining it, was his imagination, but then he realized that actually it was a woman singing to mock the SS, because the SS couldn't know what she was singing. So that's more or less the story I decided to portray. The guy that experienced this, his name was Judah Berkowitz. He also passed away, I guess, four or five years ago. And um, beside these historical elements, the point was to say, how do we use VR to make this? And also because of my sheer incompetence at the beginning, my first suggestion was to say, we will have the viewer impersonating a prisoner. And then I spoke with some people, and including Carmen Langen, they told me that it's a no-go. So it's not what VR should be, because prisoners at the time, they were fast facing incredible hurdles, and they were hungry, and they were exhausted, they were cold, they were sick, they were everything. And it wouldn't be respectful. So to say, like, you know, you wear visors, and maybe we have you walking on gravel, maybe we aircon the box where the installation is, and maybe you feel cold, and then you impersonate a prisoner. It's, it's nothing compared to... So the conclusion was VR, it's not an imitation of life. It's a different reality, and you have to play along with the still limited set of senses you have at your disposal. And so we decided to play it very subtly, and dramaturgically also. First of all, the camera is fixed and is slightly above the level of the eyes of the average viewer, so to convey a sense of difference between uh, the VR world and the real world. And then the point is we want to have the viewer becoming a digital witness of the event. And the third point is that we wanted to have the sphere of the immersive video playing a dramaturgic uh, role. The first part is a death march and you're basically standing in the middle of a road and from far away you see this march approaching with these hundred people and then something happens and then the march disappears from the other side. And um, there is a clear sense of direction and that is represented by the road from one end to the other end. And prisoners, the prisoners are captive of course, they have no choice and there is a clear sense of direction. When the prisoners are liberated, the SS have fled overnight, as it actually happened, and they are in a forest. So the prisoners are in a forest and they wake up. And uh, I've observed it also on the viewers of our project, so it actually seems to work. When the scene opens, they don't know what they have to watch. They just look around and they try to find an organization in the scene. And this is actually somehow the existential aspect of being liberated but not being free that many prisoners felt after being basically freed from the control of the guards. It plays also a little bit an existential role. So our protagonist says, uh, what could I do with so much freedom all at once after so many years in the camp? So these are basically the main elements that 
convinced me that VR and immersive film specifically was the way to go. Yeah, so you have one of the opening shots is having this death march happening. You have like going through a village and there's like a woman or a little girl that's there at the beginning and they sort of run away and it, it seems like they're going away from something and then you have this big group of like 100 men in prisoner outfits that are walking through this scene. So there's a lot of costume design and trying to get the right look and feel and get everybody as well. So I'd love to hear about that process of recreating this moment in time and all the different associated clothing of the time to be able to represent the prisoners. The costumes are the same used by Quentin Tarantino for Inglorious Bastards. So we contacted the same costume rental company and they had these costumes available. It's weird, but we've been lucky because usually they are booked out. This is a German production. And as far as it seems, Nazi costumes are uh, quite popular for German productions. So we were able to rent them for a couple of days. And we had to work on the costumes. The costume designer's name is Gregor Marvel, and he's a fantastic guy based in Berlin. We are at the end of the war, so they couldn't look pristine. We had to work on them and make them more dirty and, and so on. Same thing accounts for the weapons. So run a study on uh, the different grades of the SS, so the officers and soldiers and what kind of weapons they were carrying, so also that is very accurate. But also we wanted to create something which was a little bit different from uh, reality. So the prisoners, they all have complete garments, including the hats and they're actually caps, not hats, and some sort of gown where they're wearing and other things. Because the idea was to say, in memory, things might be looking a little bit different than how they actually happened. So you feel that there is something which is a little bit uh, off in uh, what you're seeing. So in order to create a context where we don't know if it's a dream or a precise recollection of what happened. And I would say that for many survivors, in order to elaborate the trauma, memories, of course, were altered and they became different. Not saying that they invented things, please. <laughs> I'm not saying, of course, that, but I'm saying that they had to elaborate their memories because that's the only way to survive and maybe to make reality a little bit better compared to what it actually was. That's at least what research says. So also this is based on what facts have been. Yeah, and uh, how far on average were some of these death marches? Because they were walking for some of them a long time and some of them for a great distance. Yes, 800 kilometers. is a march involved, I guess, 12,000 women from Auschwitz to Germany. And we display this kind of information in the second part of the project, which is a virtual exhibition. In Venice, we just have the beta of this exhibition, so it's going to be refined in the coming weeks. And I would say the length of the march of course, is an important information. But also what happened during the marches is a tragedy as such. In the exhibition, we show what happened in the march to the Baltic Sea. And these people were forced to walk all the way to northern Germany until the land was over. There was no land anymore. And beyond the land, there was the frozen sea. And they were forced to walk, keep on walking on the frozen sea until night came and they had to stay there and then the SS fled and some 
of these people were saved the following day and there are photos of these people being saved. So um, I would say the main element of these death marches is their absurdity. There was, of course, the Holocaust had no purpose as such. On top of that, these death marches were nonsensical. If you ask an expert what was their aim, nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. And some people say they were aimed at killing more people. Some people say they were meant to bring workforce or slaves to Germany, but nobody really knows. There is no clear answer. There is just this tragedy that we wanted to describe. Yeah, it just seems like a, an act of cruelty or perhaps also showing the places where they're walking through maybe to intimidate or show some sort of power. But yeah, it doesn't sound like there's a clear answer. And I did see the second part after I had watched the 360 video, there is this opportunity to go up to each of these different screens and have different videos play. There's like a graphic with more information. And so I had a chance to go through and get a lot more context to the story. And part of the reason why I asked the length was because in terms of the VR, there's this idea and concept of a durational take, which takes a long time to unfold. And I feel like there's really long cuts in this piece that is reflecting, like the pacing of the editing is reflecting the length of the marching in some sense. So the style of these long deliberative shots are in some ways letting you really sit in and to witness this type of cruelty that was exhibited in these death marches. That's exactly the point. So if we think about immersive film cinematography, there is still a lot to develop in the language. Traditional cinema had three great innovators, Sergei Eisenstein, Orson Welles, and Godard, I would say. So the first one invented editing, the second one invented shots, reinvented shots, and the third one <laughs> reinvented editing and shots together. So jump cuts and everything. So everything we see in contemporary flat cinema derives from the innovations of these guys. In terms of immersive films, you have to improvise and tailor the cinematography on the story you're writing and vice versa. We experimented at the beginning with trying to position the camera in different positions during the first shot until we realized that uh, having one shot with the march approaching and leaving would be much more strong than moving the camera around. This is why you also have to create a scene that is actually prone to be shot in uh, one shot. We were considering also inserting cuts with somehow a crossfade. I felt that in terms of representing a reality, we wanted to create the less distance possible, introduce the less distance possible between the viewer and the scene. So somehow you become the editor of the scene in terms of deciding where you want to watch. There is a guard shooting a prisoner in the scene and people react differently. So you have the option of looking somewhere else, as you would do in real life. And some people look at the scene and some people just really turn their head because we gave a moment between the moment when the guard aims and when the guard shoots. So if the tension becomes too high and you feel uncomfortable with that, you can look somewhere else. And this was also a discussion we had with a Jewish foundation that was interested at funding us. And they told us, 
your aim is to create something to have the viewer becoming a digital witness, how do you know the viewer will actually look where you want the viewer to look? And my first reaction was to say, maybe they don't look at it because it's too strong, but this is something you will do also with a flat screen. If you watch a horror movie and somehow the scene becomes too strong for you, you close your eyes, or you, at least I close my eyes because I, I don't have a good relationship with horror films, but you can look somewhere else, okay? So that's more or less also part of being a, or feeling at least an innovator in this field. Yeah, and, and do you know how many different scenes there are in Tales of the March? Like how many different moments there are throughout the course of the piece? There's mostly three moments. There is three moments, so the march, the liberation, and uh, the aftermath. The aftermath being uh, the prisoner 40 years later, so it's in the 80s, and so we had to reconstruct the place in the 80s. We found an incredible place. And what actually is also a a connection scene between uh, the liberation and the 80s, it has been shot in a theater, in a concert theater, in a concert house in Berlin but we realized that the protagonist before the war was a conductor. And there is a circularity in the narration, so at the end of the story we understand that the voiceover we've been hearing along all the story is actually the old guy recalling his life and his experience. So I would say three and a half. (laughs) Yeah, as I remember through the piece, it's around 13 minutes, but not a lot of cuts or action, but like these long durational takes. And one of the scenes is the the prisoners in a forest waking up and is that at the point where they've already been liberated and they're free and they just don't quite know what to do is that what is happening in that scene the prisoner wakes up and he understands that his companion is dead and he spots a corpse naked corpse on the ground with an ss uniform to his side and then he looks around and the voiceover says that the ss were gone so this is actually how it happened Overnight, the SS fled, and some exchanged their uniform with that of the dead prisoners or even alive ones, or giving them like bread or anything. So, in our case, a guard exchanged his uniform with that of a dead prisoner. And uh, we didn't want to make it too clear because this is actually what happened. You know, if after maybe five years in a concentration camp and after a death march you're finally liberated, you don't really believe it's possible. So it becomes clear that the prisoner survived only at the end of the story, more or less. So we didn't want to explain too much. Yeah, it's like a, a poetic visual storytelling language that's doing a show, not tell. So you're showing it, but not necessarily explicating it at that point. And part of my experience of the piece was that I saw a bunch of videos and other things right after that. So some of my memory of the piece is from the other extras that were afterwards, like the photographs that were taken from the house and different scenes and trees and the graphs. And so there's also an additional component to add more context. But it's interesting how my memory is sort of also blurring some of those scenes that I saw in the video into the main thing and and trying to like sort out the main thrust. That's part of the reason I'm asking to recount it. Plus, you know, being here at Venice and seeing a lot of work very quickly and trying to recount what I saw a few days ago. But yeah, maybe you could talk about this difference between mimesis and showing versus the diegetic and telling and how do you balance as a filmmaker understanding the show versus tell and how you feel like there's room to grow this grammar so that you can do more showing than telling most 
touching and impressive thing about being here in Venice with this project for me has been that many people cried upon watching uh, the film. And uh, um, you know what's absurd? Crying wearing the visors. So you don't normally cry when you do VR, okay? And um, I completed the immersive film, uh, I would say, three months ago. So I had time to forget it somehow. And as soon as the installation here, the physical installation was completed, I, I tried it again. And also my eyes <laughs> became a little wet and uh, the lenses of the Oculus became foggy. So it's, um, it is strange because then I thought, are you supposed to cry when you do VR? So it was a, a first for me as well. And there were a couple of colleagues that I mean, I removed the glasses after the screening, after the immersive film, and they, they had so many tears. And we hugged and they said, thank you, this was very touching. I mean, not saying that it's like, it happened a couple of times, okay? So much more often than I expected. So I'm not proud of it. Like, it's not like I feel any pride at making people cry, but it's, for me, it's evidence of a fact that the film touched uh, the souls of some people. And... Um, so, you know, normally VR films are more in the realm of surrealism or conceptual poetry. And there is something with, at the end of the story, a traditional dramaturgic concept might basically leverage elements from both the traditional and the VR filmic language. Developing it... I think that we are such an in, still in such an experimental phase that every story is a new one. So I don't think that anybody can sit down and say, so now we have to write a book about the concept of cinematography and editing in VR. Maybe some people do, but I don't know. It's like as Eisenstein did with his analogic editing and so on. I'm just saying that the definition of a language will come through experience and through the coming together of, of an audience, it is reaching that level. I must say, somehow, the point is that, personally, I'm a little bit less of a fan of those stories where, that are shot in 3D or 6D, and where you're not supposed to watch is black, basically blacked out or blurred away, and then you're forced to watch in a certain direction, because then I miss the dramaturgic purpose of shooting with this system. So... When people say, because, you know, when we have some, like, people new to the scene that come to the island, uh, this island, we are on Lazzaretto Vecchio in Venice, and they go like, they ask, is this the future of cinema? And uh, how often have we heard this question? Is this the future of cinema? And you're like, this is not cinema. It's like, is the television the future of radio? It's a different story. And uh, maybe there will be different languages within the concept of VR, of course. Yeah, I definitely think that for some projects, it's totally okay to, you know, sit back and just watch and have your attention directed. But I think it's almost like a different genre of 180 films versus 360 films. And so with the genre, there's new affordances and different grammar that can emerge with the expectations that the audience have. I think one of the challenges with 360 video is that learning how to direct your own attention and what to pay attention to is a bit of following the signs of where to look. But I think the other part is that as you're starting to explore in this piece is that there's a bit of ambiguity that you have to use. And if you're not 
using narration or other elements to sort of help explain things, there's a bit of symbolic logic that you have to understand either the symbolism of actions or kind of piece together what is happening by maybe not having every specific detail spelled out for you, but that you kind of have to understand more of a poetic associations and links based upon these actions to piece together the narrative. There's been a number of different pieces here that do that. Just talked to Stea about the imaginary friend, which has a narrative arc that leaves a lot of gaps as to what's actually happening and that you have to kind of pay very close attention to the little clues to understand the arc of the film. And in your piece, you're also leaving a level of ambiguity there, but also calling back if by the end, you kind of understand that there's this trauma that's still rippling through this man's life as he's recalling these moments of these songs and having his own family that he's been able to create since that point. So you, you understand that this is later in time and that he's, he's still sort of haunted by this experience to some extent. So, but yeah, I, I feel like that it's going to take a lot of different perspectives and creators and, and honestly stories because the story you're telling is very much like a certain genre within itself of trying to tell a story that hasn't been told before and, and see how, the spatial context of a hundred prisoners walking by sort of deserves a sense of being in the place to observe that and witness that where if you try to frame it in a 2d frame changes the whole experience of walking from one point to the next point in this durational experience that gives you the sense of time and gives you the sense of scale and the sense of the cruelty of that act where I think the VR as a medium is specifically suited to be able to capture a lot of those elements. You see a march appearing from uh, far, far away, and uh, it feels like uh, situationism. It's absurd. What is this? People walking in strange uniforms with stripes, and other people forcing one to walk by pointing guns at them. It's absurd as such. And so with this medium, we have the chance of expressing the, how nonsensical the whole story is. That's very important, I guess. That's why I think that we can be even more expressive with an immersing camera compared to traditional camera. On top of that, I would say we cannot part any concept, any camera concept we developed in this area with the work on sound. Our audio designer, Nirto Karsten Fischer from Ensonics, paid close attention to creating a an audio system, an audio structure, fully integrated with a scene. And for example, at the beginning, the road is empty. We do have a woman looking into a certain direction so that we more or less can uh, understand that something is going to happen there. Then we have two gunshots coming from there, so with special sound. And then we have two yells, so we make clear that something is going to appear over there. Then. We have shot in 8K, but of course, the pixel density is not particularly high still. It's, the new models is going to be higher. But when the march appears far, far away, we only see some pixels like changing. Uh, they seem black and white, so they change position and so on. And, and we have to wait a couple of seconds until we understand these are human figures. So it's a whole system that must integrate uh, camera and audio in order to define a concept which is organized. I think it's, uh, it takes some brain work to have something where you know where you have to watch without a clear indication about this. It might be a little bit more subtle, and if it works, 
I cannot say about my project if it works, so it's a question I leave to the viewers. But if it works, uh, it's very sophisticated. Yeah, I wanted to ask about this integration between the emotional potency of the story and then juxtaposing it to what is sort of like informational exploration for additional context, but has a different center of gravity that seems more like getting additional information on context to the story that is a very emotional story that you could just watch and sort of be left with a heart space versus, you know, getting a lot more information where you are kind of left in a mind space. And I sort of went from the emotions and then mental exploration, but I felt like as I was coming out more in a mental space than a heart space. So yeah, I'm just wondering as you think about like a museum context, the museum often has information that you learn about something and maybe there's a movie that you watched and then you go back and get additional context. But yeah, if you've thought about how to balance these two modes of exploration of the story through both the emotions of the story and the information of the history. I guess that it's uh, customary whenever we watch a film based on uh, or inspired by through events, uh, to after the film to Google the facts, so Hollywood versus reality and so on. So this is basically the concept, okay? And... Uh, I wanted also to provide um, a <laughs> say that one-stop shop or museum, whatever, gathering uh, the basic relevant information about the death marches and some uh, specific aspects that might be of interest for the viewer. Also taking care of the accuracy of what we have been presenting and trying to satisfy the basic curiosities about the death marches. In order to do so, we have been working with the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem, with the Sachsenhausen Foundation, with a museum in Poland, and with the Washington Holocaust Memorial Museum. They were more than happy to open uh, their archives for us. And so we have interviews collected mostly in the 90s with survivors. An incredible story of German family, the Seidenberger, where there was this lady there, uh, she was 16 at the time, and uh, from her house, uh, she secretly took photos of a death march. And these photos served for the first time uh, not, not many years ago. And um, the story of a painter whom he moved to the U.S. after the war. He became a very successful commercial painter, like for advertising. And then at a certain age, he started painting the death marches in order to elaborate the trauma. So different stories that are presented in this way. And of course, the story doesn't end there. The big decision was uh, how to face the question of uh, showcasing also graphical content, so corpses and this kind of thing. So what's the point? We decided to do so. These specific photos are taken from the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Because you can always look somewhere else, because we really wanted to, to set the difference between fiction and reality. And uh, of course the story is strong, it's tragic, I'm talking about the fiction story, but reality has been uh, much worse. And this is also something we wanted to represent. Yeah, I'm glad that I, I went through all of that because I actually am that type of person that wants to get that more information. But I know that maybe in a festival context or maybe in a context where 
There might be time pressures because I know that there was a certain amount of throughput if this is shown in a museum. Like I was able to get through half of the different extra clips, but then had to kind of go through it again because it was like resetting. And it's a type of thing where you can let people explore for hours and hours, but then if they're in there for hours and hours and you get less people through. So there's this challenge of having a throughput in a museum context and also a festival context versus allowing them to really dive deep into learning a bunch of information. So I also felt that additional pressure to want to see everything, but then my my time had run out and I was like, okay, I want to see this other half of it. And so I went through it again and saw it. And there's also this like little volumetric capture of, uh, is that you that's setting the context? That's me with a terrible hairdo because I hadn't had time to go (laughs) to the barber. But yeah, that's an experiment. So we are very thankful to everybody who supported us. So Michel Relac, Liz Rosenthal from Venice Immersive and also the Median Board from Berlin that supported us. Still, the budget was a little limited, and we didn't have that many funds to go to the actual uh, like high-level volumetric capture studio. So we did it in-house with a fantastic volumetric artist, uh, Martin Demmer, and he set up his studio with, I guess it's eight cameras, if I'm not mistaken, and we did it indie. So it's uh, this indie volumetric capturing is something which... Uh, we are very happy with, and uh, it's a way of opening this technology also to indie productions. So that's it, and I am explaining uh, the basic information about uh, the death marches. As you can hear, my accent, uh, it's an indication that I was born in Italy. So we didn't want to have my strong Italian accent for all the exhibitions, so I'm just introducing. Then we have a voiceover artist who is uh, presenting uh, all the elements of the exhibition in, I would say it's a mid-Atlantic accent, so it's okay for Europe and the US. And in terms of exhibition, are you planning on including this additional like museum, you know, sort of the DVD extra clips and videos and charts in a way that you're exhibiting this in a perhaps a museum context? We will have two distribution channels, Rai Cinema, so the Italian uh, state uh, broadcaster, has bought the rights for Italy and they were going to showcase only the immersive film. But for museum context, we will uh, show the full experience. It sounds like the second part is the museum exploration is something that you're still working out? Yes, we would like to refine uh, the UX especially. And we've been uh, collecting a lot of feedback from viewers here in order to have something which might represent also a standard for other things we will do in the future. Great. And, uh, and finally, what do you think the ultimate potential of virtual reality and immersive storytelling might be and what it might be able to enable? I think it's a developed market. There is a lot of potential. And I believe that there is a culture of VR that is being developed. The best thing that could happen to VR is if we basically give up on trying to compare VR to traditional media and accept VR as a separate uh, and uh, adult technology with a potential of its own. I am not very happy. This makes me a little sad when people say it's a niche. No, we're not a niche anymore. We are a fantastic market with fantastic people. And uh, I think that uh, in terms of if I do something uh, in VR, which is well done, stays in my memory, in my emotions, as deep as a very good film. So we are there, I would say. Awesome. Is there, is there anything else that's left unsaid that you'd like to say to the broader immersive community? I would be very happy if transnational cooperations 
move forth because especially VR has the potential of bringing together people from uh, different countries and different cultures. So I think that the experience of countries like the Netherlands of Germany or Germany at introducing financing plans aimed at working with other countries or even Europe with creative media are the way to go. Awesome. Well, Stefano, I really appreciated being introduced to a lot more context of this aspect of the Holocaust that I was not as familiar with and to be able to experience it and the Tales of the March. I, yeah, just to, there's going to be some images in this piece that I think are going to really stick with me. And I think that sort of speaks to the power of the medium. Um, uh, yeah, as I digest and remember the series, there'll be certain moments and scenes that I think are in my body in a new way. And I think it sort of speaks to the power of the medium as well. And very much appreciate your pushing forward and exploring what the potentials of this medium are. So thanks again for joining me today and uh, helping to break it all down. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to this interview from Venice Immersive 2023. You can go check out the Critics Roundtable in episode 1305 to get more breakdown in each of these different experiences. And I hope to be posting more information on my Patreon at some point. There's a lot to digest here. I'm going to be giving some presentations here over the next couple of months. And tune into my Patreon at patreon.com slash Voices of VR, since there's certainly a lot to digest about the structures and patterns of immersive storytelling, some of the different emerging grammar that we're starting to develop, as well as the underlying patterns of experiential design. So that's all I have for today. And thanks for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And again, if you enjoyed the podcast, then please do spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener-supported podcast, and so I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue to bring this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening. Thank you.